0: Welcome to the How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host.
1: Welcome to this episode of the How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Daniel Eber. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is going to be exciting. This is a completely different topic than I've ever addressed over 400 plus shows or episodes rather on this show. So I'm excited to have this conversation, Danny. Uh, Danny or Daniel is going to share some of his knowledge on linguistics or of linguistics, which is, to put it at a very high level, the study of human language. And particularly, we're going to talk about it in the context of small business, including how our first impressions upon our customers, our clients, maybe a prospective employee or the other way around how that influences, how it might be influenced by our accents, for example. So a lot of very interesting things there that we're going to explore with Danny. To receive more information about the Howa business, including links to the show notes page for this episode, and how you can continue to support my show and receive exclusive content and discounts through a Patreon membership, just visit my website at thehowabusiness.com. So let me give you a little bit more background on Danny. Danny Heber is a research linguist working to document and revitalize endangered languages while studying the cross-linguistic patterns, whatever the heck that means, that we see across the world's languages, kind of the, the things that we have in common across languages. Right. He works primarily with the, uh, okay, this one I need some help pronouncing, but I think it's Chittimacha tribe. Is that right? Yep. Exactly. Yep. yep. So he works primarily with the Chittimacha tribe of Louisiana to help them revitalize their once dormant language. Daniel earned his PhD in linguistics from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and prior to graduate school, he worked for Rosetta Stone's Endangered Language Program to create language learning software with Native American language communities. Daniel lives in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. So once again, Danny welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be on.
1: Yes. Yes. It's going to be a very, very interesting conversation. Um, let's start a little bit though about your journey and how you got to what you're doing today. What, what led you to the study of linguistics?
0: Well, I've always been super interested in languages. Ever since I was a little kid, I would even, when I would say something or someone else would say something, I would even kind of repeat it back to myself under my breath sometimes. Really? I'm sure I was kind of a weird kid, but, um, (laughs) you know, I started learning Spanish and then Latin in middle school and high school. And then I wanted to branch outside of Europe and I started learning Swahili. I did a study abroad in Kenya and I've always been interested in languages. And then I got to undergrad. I went to undergrad at William and Mary in Virginia. And I was looking through the course catalog one day and I saw this thing linguistics and I said, what's that? Um, So I went and read all the course descriptions and, you know, immediately I was like, that's what I'm doing with the rest (laughs) of my life. Like, this is what I want to do. So it was pretty straightforward from there.
1: This early um, interest in language, was it fostered at home? Did your parents speak multiple language? What, What do you think might have exposed you to it early on?
0: Uh, no, uh, my my parents were always very encouraging of me reading and kind of exploring my interests. And I think that was a major thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to say, like why I picked up on that linguistically. Um, there is uh, a little bit of evidence to suggest that uh, gay men sometimes are more attentive to language because they're oh. in- attentive to how they speak. And so you do tend to see a lot of gay men in linguistics. Um, but you know that's still kind of a little speculative but yeah,
1: yeah. that's an interesting observation. I uh, have uh similarly as an immigrant, a son of immigrant parents, I was hyper conscious of not having an accent and we'll talk mm, about right. accents when I was growing up. I grew up in South Florida and so I'm a son of Cuban immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, you know, we we were ridiculed by the um, by the Americans, as, as we refer right, to yep. them, for our accent. So I was very hyper-conscious. And so I also developed an ear for that. Like my brother and sister have what we call a Miami accent, which comes from the oh. fact that we speak Spanglish a lot, right? A right. combination of English and Spa- and Spanish very fast and whatever comes first. But I don't have an accent. People can't place me often. Now, you might be able to <laughs> but but i have kind of this non placeable accent but it's because i was hyper conscious of it early right, on right.
0: yeah yeah no that's actually highly relevant i think to some of the stuff we might talk about today because i similarly me i grew up in new england i had kind of a new england accent when i was younger and then we moved to the appalachian mountains in virginia mm. and i you know i probably should have picked up that accent but instead i wound up with the the little more kind of socially prestigious like mid atlantic accent and, Right. and some people are just a little more kind of socially attentive to, um, kind of the, the social connotations of different accents when they're young and they'll adjust. And I think I was one of those people that did that without realizing it.
1: Yeah. I do the same thing. I, I, I saw, find myself doing that. And I tend to parrot that now, even when I travel mm-hmm. as a way of blending in, not that I blend in, but you know, I think <laughs> that I am. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Yep. So, uh, how many languages do you speak now fluently? <laughs>
0: Um, Fluently just three. I've got English, Spanish, and Swahili. Swahili is my best second language because I've done a lot of field work in East Africa. Um, But I should point out though that uh, linguistics isn't so much about uh, learning lots of languages and it's more about the science of how language works, like how we learn language, how language changes over time, how language affects cognition and cognition affects language and things. So um, a, a joke that linguists sometimes like to use is that asking a linguist how many languages they speak is like asking a doctor how many diseases they have.
1: Right, right. No, that's fair. That's fair. You could be a linguist and only concentrate on English and, right. and all of the different facets of the origin of it and so forth and exactly. only speak yeah. that one
0: language. Yeah. Right. Yep. As a matter of yeah. fact, um, uh, Noam Chomsky is pretty famous for that. I believe he knows some Hebrew, but you know, he's one of the most famous linguists and he just mostly focuses on English.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: no, great observation. Uh,
1: So, But then what leads to your interest in Native American, not just Native American, but most recently Native American languages?
0: Yeah, I I became interested in that in undergrad when I was doing fieldwork in Kenya. I'd always been interested in East Africa, and then I discovered there was this whole movement to document minority languages and try and um, help revitalize them before they disappear. And so I started taking interest in that in undergrad, and then I had an internship with the Endangered Language Program at Rosetta Stone. They make that language learning software. Uh, And it just so happened right after undergrad, a position opened up and Hmm. I was able to work there for five years. We worked with the Navajo, the Chitimacha in Louisiana, which is how I got involved with that group. Um, We worked with the Mohawk and the Inupiaq, which is one of the Eskimo languages of Alaska. And then later during grad school, I also did some freelance work with them too. And we worked on the language, which is spoken in Southern California. Wow. Yeah. I watched your, uh, the video, I think it's on your YouTube side of, mm-hmm. of your
1: presentation on the Chinamacha language and the, okay. the two last known people to speak it. And there's even a little audio tape of them, but fascinating work. And so you're helping them, that tribe bring that language back. I'm mm-hmm. curious with the younger people in the tribe, what is their reaction and response to this?
0: Well, a, a lot of them. I mean, a lot of them love it. They they love the language and culture classes that they have every day in the tribal school. Um, and what's great about it is that the the school is, they're making it really prominent. It's like part of their everyday, day to day, you know, classroom and schooling and stuff. They're not quite at immersion level yet, but. Um, You know, the kids kind of don't think twice about it because it's just there all the time. Like they have exposure to the language for the first time and, you know, 90 years. And, um, and that's great. We, you know, we kind of want it so that they're not thinking twice about it. They're just Mm -hmm. taking the language for granted. That's good.
1: Why, in your opinion and observation and learning, is it that we can, is it important? And what is it that we can learn? Like for them as an example, Mm -hmm. other than the nostalgia of it, or, you know, a sense of pride. What is it that they're learning culturally about themselves by relearning this language?
0: Oh, all sorts of interesting things. Uh, So the language also has all these hints of kind of the history of contact between Mm. the languages and peoples in the region. And so there's all sorts of interesting things there. Um, And just in general, like languages often reflect the way that people think about the world a lot of times. Like if you talk about something enough and frequently enough, eventually it becomes kind of routinized and becomes part of the grammar of the language. And so the language reflects some of those ways of thinking down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and then of course for linguistic science, endangered languages are really, really important too because they're often, like we have really good representation of like one or two, you know, a handful of big language families out there. Like we know a lot about Indo-European. We know a lot about Chinese and Mandarin. And, um, but we, you know, we know very, very little still about languages from, from all these other minority language families all over the world. And so every, every time I start working on a new language, I discover things that I didn't even think were possible in language. So I'm still learning. It's pretty interesting in how uh, people could express something or describe
1: something, but also you're getting from that, their uh, aspects of their culture that may not Mm -hmm. have been documented elsewhere. Is that fair?
0: Right. Yeah. I'll give you a real quick example. So in English, we tend to have what's called relative directions, relative directional reckoning. So we say left and right. It's the directions are relative to us and our kind of orientation, but some languages don't do that. Some languages have absolute directions. So instead of saying left or right, you always orient based on some aspect of geography or cardinal directions. So you would say that like the book is upriver from me when it's sitting to the left of you or something like Mm. that. And, and so that reflects this very intimate knowledge of the local environment, and that's been coded in the grammar of the language. So it's just right. this you know, one quick example of something that we wouldn't know about if we'd never documented those languages. Right, right. Interesting. Fascinating.
1: All right, let's start focusing it as it relates to business and, mm-hmm. and why this is important and what can we learn from it as business owners. So let's just start with that, just that higher level topic, as you've done a lot of thinking and, and sharing of knowledge on this, but what are your some some of your to get started some of your observations about language in business versus in a social context
0: well um, so i'm actually going to deny the distinction right off the bat so okay clearly you know business is a social context and as you're going throughout your day in in during the workday you're kind of constantly moving on this continuum between uh, formal and informal register we talk about register in linguistics but just kind of like levels of formality and And that varies depending on the context and the person you're talking to. It varies Mm -hmm. depending on how well, you know, someone, the type of relationship you're trying to foster with that person, whether it's, you know, a strictly kind of work relationship or if you're more friendly with them and it can even be like the physical setting and positioning. So a conversation at your desk is very different than a conversation, like in a meeting room. And that kind of constructs some of the, like the level of formality that you're making for that conversation um and different speech communities of any size can kind of have different conventions about this too like some startups might be very very informal in how they're talking during the day and right and others might be very formal and it might vary de- by department or company or region or country you know and so there are cultural differences involved too so as you're moving throughout the work day you're kind of constantly having to be attentive to like what are the social cues here and formality is often about creating or maintaining or respecting social distance. Uh, and that's a lot of kind of the social social work we're doing throughout the, throughout the day. Um, and for the most part, uh, people tend to be pretty good at this. Like we're very socially hyper-aware animals. We naturally pay attention to these social categories and we adjust our speech to them. So a lot of times this doesn't actually take a lot of work but it's it's some, when you have discrepancies is when people have different judgments about the social situation or they have different cultural backgrounds about what's considered formal or informal or appropriate for the situation or not and then those kind of discrepancies wind up being realized in the language they re, they're realized in you know how you talk to someone you might approach someone more informally than they're expecting and they might find that rude or disrespectful but it's usually not so much of a linguistic Difference as like a difference in your judgment of the social situation.
1: Yeah, and and I can see where this is particularly challenging for a small business environment, which mm-hmm. can be more like the startup. But I think it's one of the challenges that we have as small business owners is not to allow the environment to get too familial, mm-hmm. right? Too too in, informal. Because that, that can lead to other issues and, and you know, level of respect and, and understanding that, we, that it is a, needs to be a professional environment. That's often a challenge for small business owners is crossing. Because it's a small group often, we, those boundaries are much more blurry, uh, that social distancing is much right. more blurry. And so it becomes more of a challenge, I think, for small business owners.
0: Yeah. And especially because any individual person in any individual context might have slightly different social goals. So, um, like for example, if you're bringing on a new hire, you might be trying to create a bit of a more informal setting to help that new hire feel more comfortable. Mm. And so you might be using more informal language, Mm -hmm. but the new hire is probably feeling pretty insecure not quite sure, you know, a a lot of uncertainty on the first day. Right. So they might actually, be trying to establish and look for a bit more structure and a bit more formality in this kind of uncertain environment, and so sometimes you know those those two kind of social goals can um, you know be at odds with each other.
1: Right. Yeah. No, that's a great point as well. You know, it doesn't happen as much in a in a corporate environment because typically in a corporate environment that that tone has been established for some period of time. Right. And you have layers and, and so there there's there's a hierarchy that's established, predetermined before you join. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well I'll I'll give you another example. Um I was thinking about this with our email exchanges before the podcast. So you you'd probably agree that your emails were somewhat more formal and a bit more formulaic than mine were. And that's because I think we had like slightly different social goals and in and, and no way was this in conflict, but like, you know, the formality of your emails makes a lot of sense because you're a show about business. So you want to give an impression of seriousness and authority. Whereas I'm trying to por- portray myself as a guest that's going to co- come on your show and your listeners are going to find personable and, and engaging. Right. So I'm trying to close that social distance a little bit. So it's this fine little social dance that people are doing and kind of how they use their language to in- convey these things. Right. But, but the,
1: I think that that's why this is such a great conversation. The more aware you are of that, the more you can flex that muscle to your exactly. advantage, depending on the scenario.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yep. Um, excellent. So l- let's, Uh, talk about accents because that's such a big part of how we perceive each other and especially as it relates to the business world um and i don't know where do you think we should start because i have a bunch of questions here related (laughs) to accents but where would you like to start about how accents influence us and how we perceive each other in particularly in the business world
0: well um I think it's important to recognize that most of our perception of accents is very subconscious and non-conscious. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of great research out there that shows how this can affect people's perceptions of others. Um, a really salient example comes from the National Fair Housing Alliance, and they were doing some research trying to, t- to test whether renters are being fair and discriminating. Mm -hmm. Um, again, toward the people who wanted to rent from them. And so they did, they did these telephone tests and they would call up the renters and they'd ask whether an apartment was available and they, and these renters would consist. Well, some renters would consistently tell their black applicants that the unit wasn't available. And then immediately afterwards get a call from a white applicant and tell the white applicant that the unit was available. And this was on the telephone. So they never saw the person in person. And some of the renters, when they questioned about it later, weren't even aware that they'd been doing this. They were just Hmm. kind of, you know, going off vibes or something. And there's also been hiring studies as well that they'll, take the um, the same resume and they'll just change the last name of the applicant to a name that's more typically associated with the Black community. And they'll see that they'll, they'll get fewer callbacks or someone will call HR asking for an interview. And again, if they, it can even be the same person just switching between kind of a more standardized dialect and uh, African-American English dialect. And that same person would receive fewer callbacks and things. So it's uh it's very subtle. I think language often kind of winds up being one of the like last kind of acceptable forms of discrimination that a lot of times we're not even aware of. And it's you know, I say acceptable, not in the sense that it actually is acceptable, but right, that right. we like accept it because we don't realize otherwise.
1: Sure, yeah. And and is it, I gotta think at the at one of the roots of it is that we associate that. I mean, in, in that case, in that scenario. We associated with less ability to be able to pay your bills. Let's say mm-hmm. uh, that you don't you don't have the wherewithal or the credit worthiness or whatever the case may be. But in an employer uh, situation, I might think, well, that person isn't as capable. Maybe they're not as intelligent, based solely on their accent. And right. you're saying that that I'm making kind of that termination very subconsciously more than than necessarily actively, even though it is discrimination. But is it is that part of what I'm? I think I'm reading is that that person is less intelligent or less capable.
0: Yeah. And uh, unfortunately that is often what happens is we, especially just dialects that we're less familiar with and that we associate certain ways of speaking with certain groups of people. And we have stereotypes about those groups of people and things. So we, yeah, we, we kind of tap into those stereotypes subconsciously when Mm -hmm. we're paying attention to someone, how someone else speaks. But of course, I'm like, you learn to speak before you ever get to school. And before you ever really have a you know a chance at education, most of the time, and so, and for most people, like you you and I are actually kind of the unusual ones. Most people don't change their accent much after right. childhood. Right. Right. So um, for the most part, like. After that, you know, after age five, like doesn't matter what their background is, like you, their accent doesn't really tell you anything about their background. Yeah, like, that's such a good point of
1: enlightenment that it has nothing to do with the fact that they may have gone on to get a PhD. They may right. have still carried forward that their native accent, for lack of a better right. term. Yeah,
0: yeah. There's a really uh, famous example in linguistics of a great study that was done back in the 1960s. And this linguist went around to every Macy's department store in New York City at the time and kind of greater area. And he, at, he found something on the fourth floor of the Macy's. And then he went to every single one of the, the people working at the, each of those Macy's. And he asked, like, hey, where's, you know, X, like, where are the shoes or whatever? And he knew that it was on the fourth floor. So he knew that they would say, oh, it's on the fourth floor. But of course, if you're saying that with a New York accent, you're going to say that, <laughs> that whole floor, right? Well, it turns out that there was variation in that. And what he found is that when people would pronounce the R, consist- the people that pronounced the R were consistently in areas of higher socioeconomic status. And these, these dialects with the R were kind of associated with the upper class. In New York City, whereas kind of the lower class areas didn't have this R. So it was this really salient, like sociolinguistic feature that people pick up on, or at least in the 60s did, picked up on in New York. That was kind of a signal of your class and your status. Right.
1: And it's our instinct, isn't it? As you know, I, I believe we're all tribal by by kind of nature mm-hmm. to distinguish ourselves and they're they're not in the tribe that I think is right fit or that I want to be associated with. And so that's why we subtly, but very, but, but it's impactful. We pick up on those cues, don't
0: we? Right. But it's important to remember at the same time that those cues vary depending on your own background. So like someone did that same experiment in London, like 10 years later and found the exact opposite results. Mm -hmm. So someone coming from England who hears that difference in R is going to interpret that entirely backwards from an American who does it. Yeah. So it just, it
1: proves that it's completely on our biases on what that triggers for us based on our upbringing or what we believe or who we associate with or what we've been told are are a group of people that might be more or less intelligent or more or less capable. Yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. And so I like to say that people's attitudes about language are usually never about language itself. You're usually reacting instead to your ideas about the group that you think speaks that way. That's right.
1: That's right. And then, so that's always a generalization and that's what gets us in trouble. This is Henry Lopez with a brief break from this episode to share a special offer from our new show sponsor, Roll by ADP. It's no secret that starting a business causes stress and can sometimes feel like it's you against the world, so you need the right partner by your side. Like Roll by ADP, a chat-based mobile payroll app built with small business owners in mind. Roll simplifies the payroll process, making running payroll as easy as sending a text, really and lets you pay employees, including contractors, freelancers, even yourself, directly from your mobile device. On top of that, Roll helps you stay in compliance, giving you one fewer thing to stress over. Since Roll is an app, you can say goodbye to stacks of paper everywhere, and it always has your back, offering 24-7 live chat support and step-by-step guidance. Enroll is backed by the payroll experts at ADP, giving you industry-leading security, expertise, and reliability. Welcome to a better way of doing business. Visit getroll.com slash howabusiness today and get your first three months free. Why do Americans, or do you know why Americans generally perceive a British accent to be someone who's more intelligent or more proper or more professional,
0: yeah. I think it's just because British English is thought to be older, and it's at least from the colonial era onwards, it was associated with the higher social class as it compared to the colonists, right? So there's there's been this long, several hundred year tradition of thinking that way. But what's funny is that actually some of the features of British English now are newer than features of American English. Is that right? Yeah. Some of the dialects of New England actually sound closer to what British English originally sounded like during the Clono era than British English does today. Hmm, fascinating. And of course, if, you, if you're familiar with it
1: enough, you know that there are so many different accents within the UK right. and they within themselves do the same thing, right? They judge each other Oh, absolutely. What part of the country you're from. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh,
1: Perhaps even more harshly than we do sometimes, or at least as harshly as we do as Americans.
0: Well, the the longer a language has been in a place, the more time it has Mm. to to diversify. Mm. And as a result, of course, there's kind of more social distinctions and and social judgments that go along with it. And that's why in the states there are many more dial, there's much more dialectical diversity on the East Coast than the West Coast. The East Coast has you know, a dozen different dialect groups. And most of the time linguists just lump the entire, like from uh, the Midwest West, we just lump it all into Western dialect. Like mm-hmm. there's variation within it, but not much compared to the East. Right, right.
1: Okay. Um we'll take a bit of a slight turn here. You, mm-hmm. you had a great video on your, I think I found it on your YouTube uh, mm-hmm. channel, on filler words. And this is a big thing for me because I've worked very hard over my career having come from sales and now obviously doing this in podcasting of, of cleaning that up in my language. But, um, but you have an interesting perspective on this, on, on the effectiveness of filler words and
0: sound. So tell us about that. Sure. So kind of one of the fundamental tenets of linguistics is that everything in language has a function. So filler words, aren't just filler. like they, they actually have a use and a purpose in language. And one of the purposes that they often have, your ums and your ahs and things, is to signal that you have more to say. Um, and that's supposed to like if you have kind of a, a firm pause, right? A pause tells you, hey, I'm done. You can jump in now. Whereas a filler is like, give me a minute, I'm thinking. I still kind of have more to say here. And if you're only ever pausing, that can actually be more confusing for other people. Of course, in a context like this, like on a podcast or if you're giving a presentation or something, um, you know, you're not trying to leave room for other people to jump in because it's meant to be this presentation. So there it can be very distracting to your listener, precisely because like there's no chance, you know, your podcast listeners are going to jump through the microphone and, you know, jump into the conversation or whatnot. So to them, it's just kind of like irritating at that point. But so the, the function of these really depends on or the use of these really depends on context. Like in some contexts, their function is really, really useful and it's a great social cue. And in other cases, not so much.
1: Yeah, no, brilliant. Yeah, that, 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 that distinction of context is, is the key part that I had never really thought about. And as, as you were saying that, I've even had a challenge sometimes because as, as we did here, we turn off video. Mm-hmm. I don't have any visual cues to lean on. So sometimes I've interviewed people were their cadence is a little differently and I'm not I don't know that they're done speaking and so then ah, I interrupt. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and right. so that that would have been a, a time for where a filler word or sound would have helped me as the other party in the conversation know that you were done and then I could speak. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, you touch on a really interesting and important is- issue. And I think this is actually very important in business context is people have different preferred communication styles. Um, and this is partly a personal preference, partly a cultural preference and a regional preference. So um, Deborah Tannen in this great book, Talking from Nine to Five, Women and Men and Work, she talks about uh, the difference between what she calls high considerateness conversation styles and high involvement conversation styles. So high involvement styles, um, they take the... So they're trying to provide feedback and show like, Hey, I'm there with you. And they're doing what we call back channeling. And they're giving you like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And they're following up. They're asking questions. They're kind of interjecting to show like, Hey, I'm engaged. I'm involved. I'm interested Mm -hmm. in what you're saying, but the high considerateness style people, they're the ones that are trying to like, let you say everything you have to say and I'll jump in when I can. And so you can immediately see how this causes some conflict in conversation sometimes. So High involvement style people take those pauses that are given by high considerate style people as meaning like, oh, they must have nof- nothing, to say. And so the high involvement people feel like they're kind of carrying the conversation because no one else wants to contribute. Right. Whereas the high considerateness people, they often feel like they're having the floor taken away from them. And then when, and when the high involvement speakers chime in to show support and participation, they're feeling like they're interrupted. hmm But what's interesting is when you get two high involvement people talking (laughs) or two high considerateness people talking, they don't feel like they're interrupted or they don't feel like nobody's talking. They come away like feeling positive about the interaction because that's how they're expecting to interact with people. Interesting.
1: And so I think what, one of the things that I learned in sales is to try to quickly judge what type of person you're talking to Mm -hmm. and then mimic that to some extent.
0: Yeah, we call that linguistic accommodation. And that's exactly, yes. Yeah, and some people do that all the time. I think everybody does that to a certain extent. Sure, but of course you do. Yeah, if you're good at sales, you probably do that really well. Right, you have to learn to do that well. Oh.
1: Southern accents, we, we alluded to other accents in the United States, but Southern accents are another one of those that, as you've shared, some of us can have a negative perception of a Southern accent, right?
0: Right, yep. And I think that just has to do with historical disparities between um, you know industrialization in the north versus the South. I mean, most of the time these kind of attitudes we have about language go back way further than we realize. Like they've mm-hmm. been latent for you know hundreds of years. So it, you know we're still kind of seeing the results of that today.
1: But don't you think you, you mentioned it as well? Don't you think that we we've had similar, general, I'm generalizing a similar reaction to a heavy New York accent or Brooklyn accent kind of can generate some of the same thing, or is it not?
0: No, that, that's absolutely true. And I think a lot of it is just kind of a matter of exposure. Like generally the, um, you know, the thickest New York accents or the, or kind of the thickest Southern accents are from areas that aren't, um, you know, they might be more rural or they might be kind of more, you know, poorer neighborhoods, kind of lower class, right? So they're not the people that are you know, as m- m- like physically mobile, they're not the people that are going to be maybe, you know, in the media spotlight as much. Right. Um, so the, we just oftentimes don't have as much exposure to these dial- these, yeah, these dialects, mm-hmm. these accents. And so we find it unusual. We find it weird. And we also associate it, uh, associate these dialects with poor neighborhoods or rural areas. And so we think of them as uneducated and backwards and things.
1: But it also comes back to the point you made about formality or the lack thereof, and I think that sometimes for me, what I might be listening for is if I'm hiring someone for a particular position that, in, and certainly, is going to be customer facing, mm-hmm. that I tend to look for someone that speaks more like me. And I, I know that's wrong, and, I'm, and I try to overcome that prejudice. But, but nonetheless, the, the way I look at it is well this person is going to be representing my business. Therefore, I don't know that they're going to be as effective as communicating if they've got this heavy accent that I perceive in a certain way. What would you say to me about my perception that that's going to be an issue and them communicating effectively on behalf of my business?
0: Well, it's a, it's a, it's a legitimate concern. Like I, I, you know, I, that's not something that I would want to downplay. Right. And because everybody has these kind of attitudes about language, you know, like we're having this conversation and it's good to be aware about these things, but most people aren't, most people have never heard of linguistics and the idea that like acts, you know, there is variation in language and that's okay. Right. So most people have attitudes and ideas about, you know what's considered kind of standard English, and there is an idea of like general American or kind of standard American English. The thing is, is this is like an artificial variety that nobody actually really speaks naturally. It's like that media English. Um, it's this very much constructed thing. Mm-hmm. But you, you know, people can be trained how to speak that way. That's what broadcasters and media people in the media do. Like you, and probably you yourself. Like you've changed the way you speak. So right. people can be trained to speak in a way that's perceived as being kind of standard, even though nobody actually speaks this standard. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and and we- the other thing with this is that there's also, everybody has like a linguistic repertoire
1: mm. of
0: the varieties they can speak. You know, we're not just stuck necessarily with one dialect, like, sure, I'll, I'll slip into my Appalachian English when I'm back home, and but I'll be speaking kind of more mid-Atlantic English when I'm giving a presentation at a conference. And so, if you find someone that has like a larger linguistic repertoire and can kind of, uh, like you said, do linguistic accommodation and and kind of meet their your client or the other person you're talking to at kind of their comfortable uh, accent or conversation style, then that's going to be someone that's a, a lot more useful to your business and a lot more versatile linguistically. Yeah, I think
1: that's often referred to as code switching. Is that right? Is that a term that's used? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Code switching usually refers to between different languages. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also talk about um, uh, style shifting. Right. uh, And, and, but, and then also just kind of like accent accommodation.
1: So if we flip it from that perspective employee, what advice do you give to someone who does have one of these accents that might be perceived wrongly? So, you know, I wanna make sure everybody listening understands. I, I realize that it's wrong to judge someone by their accent. I get that. And I try very hard not to, but nonetheless, it's our natural tendencies, and that's right. what we're talking about. So, if we're looking at it from a perspective, employee perspective, what do you recommend to someone who does have one of these heavier accents that they should do? I mean, one of the things that comes to mind, Danny, is that that I am conscious in the interview process and that I show that I can be formal despite my accent.
0: Right. Yeah. And it, it's tricky because, you know, obviously I want to like like you can speak in a, a rural accent and still be just as formal. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, but uh, like you said, unfortunately, that's not the perception that most people have. Most right. people think, you know, rural accent or like kind of poor neighborhood accent means you're an idiot and like that's. So um, one thing that uh, actually the San Francisco school system got in trouble for this back in the 90s, not in trouble, but there was kind of an uproar about it back in the 90s. Um, what they were trying to do is they were trying to teach black kids in school Like, Hey, the way you speak is different from kind of standard formal academic English. And they weren't trying to teach these kids. They they weren't trying to teach them in African-American vernacular English or what's often called Ebonics. They weren't trying to do that. They weren't trying to teach them that, but they were trying to show them like, Hey, the way you speak is like a little different from what people think of as like standard and formal and accepted. Mm -hmm. And if you're aware of these differences, then you can kind of control and command both of those dialects much easier. And so that's kind of what I'd encourage people to do is just be aware that there are often attitudes about the way you speak. And the thing is, is everybody speaks with an accent. Yeah. There's no such thing as speaking without without an accent, which means someone out there is going to find the way you speak irritating or dumb. That's right. And so if you're aware of that and you're aware of, you know, like kind of the range of features and the different kind of grammatical Constructions that you use versus other people use, like that, that helps you, and you kind of it grows your linguistic repertoire. It can make you able to kind of better move between these different social situations. Which, which brings me to the point that at the end of the day, regardless of
1: our accents, if we can communicate effectively, if we can get across our point or the message or whatever it is that I'm selling or communicating, if I can do that effectively, that's what's most important. Yeah.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Yep. And we can do that in very different styles and in different accents. Now, I may have to follow a particular script that my employer asks me to follow, sure. but, but, but that's okay as long as I communicate it. And, and I find that sometimes with these accents, and maybe I'm generalizing, sometimes the story, like, for example, just to pick up on Southern, if you take a Southern accent, mm-hmm. I associate it with great storytellers, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and so if you channel that the right way, it can be an advantage as well.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I'm you know I I do a lot of TikTok videos, and that's kind of the one thing you tell a good story that's going to engage people. Like you do that in kind of a traditional, you know, southern storytelling style, with or without the accent. Like you're, you know, that's going to be a viral video for you. It's gonna that's, go right. Great. that's right. That's yeah. right.
1: All right, I, I, you touched on it at, at the beginning, and I can't uh, go without talking about the, the so called mid Atlantic accent. And it has always mm-hmm. fascinated me the origins of that. And so,
0: introduce it, if you will, the, the, the so called mid Atlantic accent. So there are actually two different things known as the Mid-Atlantic accent. Oh, okay. The first one is this really interesting kind of mix of American English and British English that was used in the early film industry right. in like the 1930s and and. And that's the one I was referring to. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. And uh, I, you know, to be honest, I'm not. I, I that I'm not one hundred percent sure where that comes from. I think that might just be a result of kind of the maybe the prestige of British English at the time and in the media. Um, So and actually, what's interesting about that, too, is I went to grad school at University of California, Santa Barbara, and Santa Barbara was actually where that early film industry was before it moved down to Uh, Hollywood. Yeah. So some of that we got to learn about some of that history in the area. It was really fun. Um, But the other mid-Atlantic dialect is the one that's in kind of the the Baltimore kind of D.C., maybe all the way up to Pittsburgh kind of area. And it's actually a pretty small dialect area. Hmm. Um, but it's the one we associate with like Washington DC and the speakers there as as kind of like this, it, because of the prestige of DC and the fact that it gets all this media attention and it's, you know, seen as, you know, this kind of formal place, right? Like like the mid Atlantic dialect tends to be fairly prestigious. And so I think no surprise, like little me, when I was like, you know, seven (laughs) years old, I I think I must have picked up on that fact that it was a little more socially advantageous for me to speak this way as opposed to Appalachian English, and kind of slowly shifted to speaking that way. Mm-hmm. Interesting, it's, it's fascinating. All right, so so
1: maybe this is not a fair question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. All right <laughs> is there is there uh, an accent or a way of communicating? Well, that's that's not right. Uh, a, a way of speaking the language that. Is most effective in business, or does it depend? And I'm talking about business in the United States, or does it depend?
0: Yeah, it, and unfortunately, it really does depend. Um, I I think about linguist like communication in the workplace, like a little bit like project management. Like if you created a project management plan and didn't create like a flexible timeline and build in some you know buffer time for things to happen, it's kind of like uh, you like you know, planning to never have miscommunication in the workplace Mm -hmm, and never have mm -hmm. communication differences in the workplace. So I think like the best piece of advice I can give is to just anticipate that there are going to be differences in in communication style and dialects. um, And, and, you know, to the extent you can just like be willing to tolerate those and and clarify. That said, I do think one thing that's really important to keep in mind is that there's a difference between literacy and language. Um, So you know, writing conventions are this abstract formal thing you learn in school after you've learned how to speak. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of this whole art form to do it. Well, I know you had a episode with Katie Cronkite recently talking about better writing and how that can lead to better sales and stuff. And that is really important. And uh, a lot of people think that when I'm on here saying kind of, there's no wrong way to speak that that applies to writing too. And that's not necessarily the case, like writing formal written conventions have a place Um, And they're very important for kind of, you know, displaying sort of the level of education and authority and prestige of your business and things. So having kind of standardized written conventions, I think is perfectly reasonable. You know, we we expect certain writing styles in a formal context at the same time, though, literacy is a matter of exposure to and support for educational opportunities. Not everybody has the same kind of educational opportunities. So, it's important to remember that someone's writing isn't necessarily a sign of their intelligence either. It definitely, it probably is a sign of kind of their educational background and how used they are used to, they are in doing, you know, formal and academic writing and stuff. And that can be very, very relevant to your hiring decisions, of course. Um, But that's also something that can be taught. That's, there are great literacy courses out there that you can ask your employees to take and they will be better at writing emails afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Great
1: points. I think the point about the written communication you know, one of the things, one of the ways that I've tried to apply that in some of my business environments is by having uh, templates, for lack of a better term, templates or, or examples that are the standard for common communications.
0: Right? Yeah, that's a great idea. Definitely. Uh,
1: so that, that sets to your point, uh, this is how we do this here. This is the type of language we use when we are doing written communications. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, just like we were talking about earlier, everyone is you know, we're members of multiple speech communities and we have this wide range of linguistic repertoires. So, you know, like demonstrating for someone that this is kind of the the speech that we do here, you know, is really helpful for employees because they learn like, oh, okay, I'm going to communicate in this way in this speech community and communicate in this way when I'm home with my family and stuff. And yeah, we're flexible. We learn these things pretty quick. Mm-hmm.
1: I think, you know, and to summarize here, the other thing I, we have to be careful with as business owners is that we are not trying to hire people that speak exactly like we do. More important, mm. I think for me is, is it, is it my customer going to connect and, and are we going to be able to communicate right. effectively with my end customer? Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yep. So I, yeah, if you've, you know, I, if you're looking specifically for sales, I, you know, you should look for people that are able to kind of a command uh, a wide linguistic repertoire and can do that not necessarily accent accommodation but like you know speech style accommodation right right um, and this often is like an East Coast West Coast thing I've mm. kind of I've done heard a lot about this read a bit and experienced it personally moving from Virginia to Southern California uh, I felt very interrupty in California I I felt like people were irritated because I was jumping in too much because I had a more high involvement style um, and kind of a, like a quicker style too. a lot of people on the West coast or further West, like they're, they're more tolerant of like small talk and things. Whereas on the East coast, it's kind of like, go, go, go get it done. Like we're, you know, we're terse, we're on a schedule kind of thing. So very different, very different conversational styles. Absolutely. Same thing with Northeast and, and Southern.
1: I live in Florida now, mm-hmm. but I spent 31 years in Texas and there is that very different linguistic style. If I'm following what you're talking about, we in the south. We we get around to the point, <laughs> whereas in the northeast, yeah, yes. I'm generalizing. In the northeast, we get right to the point. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and, and, and it's 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 effective in the end,
0: but it can be it can clash sometimes. Is what we have to be aware of. Yeah. You know, growing up in the South, I I was always told about how New Yorkers are so rude, this and that. And then I spent yeah. a good deal of time in Manhattan, right. and. I I came to realize like, no, they're just being respectful of your time.
1: Yeah. They're being more direct. That's just that, that linguistic style. And again, it might be, again, that time might have something to do with it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just an approach. I had this challenge when I was managing a business, a business that I owned in Texas and our, um, our clientele there, when we would have an issue both my brother and I, because we were from South Florida, which isn't Southern, it's very mm-hmm. different, right? South Florida <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> is more New York than it is Florida. And yep. and, and, and so we came to it with that style of just getting right to the point. And people took that as very brusque, very, very short. Right. yeah. And so we had to learn, we had to learn to adapt to that you, you don't get straight to the point necessarily, you speak to towards it, and then you get to your point and that right you have to adjust well, to that.
0: One of my favorite sayings for this is sometimes to find uh, find out about the hole in the roof, you have to ask about the weather. <laughs> I love that.
1: Exactly yeah. right. All right, so um, I'm curious what, what's what's next for
0: you. What, what what do you have on your horizon? Well, I uh, two different things. I'm continuing to work with the Chitimacha tribe, and we're putting together a dictionary that we're hoping to release the first edition of this year. So very excited about that. That's a you know decades long project in the wow. making. Um, And then I myself, am also starting to grow my own business, my science communication business, linguistic discovery. Um, Very recent, you know, it's only in the past handful of months that I've kind of really started taking it seriously as a business and starting to think of it that way. So I'm only just beginning to monetize and thinking about kind of the services and products I'll offer, but it's exciting for me. So I actually have recently subscribed to your podcast and getting some great wisdom there. Appreciate that.
1: And where can can we go online to learn more about what you're currently doing in in the future?
0: Uh, The best place is linguisticdiscovery.com. And there you can also find links to all of my kind of social media presence. I post uh, several times a week, different educational videos about language and linguistics and how the science of how language works. Uh, And I'm most active on TikTok, but you can find all of my stuff on YouTube, on Instagram, Twitter, uh, all under kind of the linguistic discovery handle. Excellent.
1: All right, I'm always looking for a book recommendation. You, you mentioned it already, I believe. Talking from nine to five. Tell me about that book.
0: Yeah, it's an excellent book. It's uh, a little older. It's from 1994, but I still think it's absolutely relevant. It's it's highly useful. Um, so Deborah Tannen, the author, talks about just kind of different conversational styles between men and women in general, and how that causes issues at work sometimes. Uh, and it, both men and women report. feeling like they're interrupted more by the opposite gender. Hmm. Um, But the behaviors that they're reacting to are slightly different. And so she explains like how it is that men and women kind of conceptualize like what counts as good conversation differently and how that leads to conflict in the workplace sometimes. So I think it's an excellent book to be aware of. Fascinating. Thanks for that recommendation. We'll have a link to it as well uh, on the show notes page
1: of this episode Mm -hmm. at thehowabusiness.com. All right. We'll wrap it up with the last question. Um, let's bring it all together. What's What's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation we had about linguistics and what we can learn about being more aware of it as a small business owner?
0: I think the most important thing is that your, your attitudes about the way people speak are never really attitudes about language. They're always attitudes about people. So just be cognizant of that fact. Like don't let language bias, you you know, remember that everybody speaks slightly differently from you. And the way that you speak sounds just as strange to other people as you know, they do to you. And so once you recognize that you can focus on what you know about the person, rather than the way that person speaks. And so just yeah. kind of like embrace the variation that we have in language and in the workplace and, you know, kind of appreciate that diversity rather than trying to fight against it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Embrace it and appreciate it. And at the end of the day, what what I'm going to try to do better and better is to listen for, do they effectively communicate regardless of what Mm. the accent might be or even their use of vocabulary? Can they communicate an idea or a concept effectively? If in fact, that's important to the role that I'm hiring them for, right?
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. Yep.
1: Wonderful. And tell us again, where you want us to go online to learn more. Linguisticdiscovery.com. Danny, fascinating conversation. Um, Hope to have you back on to to chat some more about this. Thanks for sharing all of this and and helping us think through this and, and being with me on the show today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's always a real joy to get to kind of introduce people to language and linguistics and how language works. So thank you very much for having me. My pleasure.
1: This is Henry Lopez. And thanks for joining me on this episode of the Howa Business. My guest today, again, was Danny Heber. I would release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at my website, thehowofbusiness.com.
0: Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.